are listening to Teacher Talk It, supporting teachers, parents and students worldwide. www.teachertalkit.co.uk Like, subscribe and follow to stay in the know. And I, I could give you a thousand examples of teachers who, you know, after an exam, will their head in their hands will go, they could do the maths, but they gave up because they didn't understand this term or they couldn't read it. And they said, sir, you weren't there, so I couldn't read it. And, and it makes me want to cry, and it does make them cry, you know. So this is why we are all teachers of reading. We help teachers thrive and survive with classroom ideas, cutting-edge school resources, and research-informed teacher training materials. You will also hear discussions on the policy, guidance, and research-based publications. This week, listen to Ross McGill. Founder of Teacher Toolkit interview Ruth Everett, an English teacher for almost 40 years and now supporting senior leaders and colleagues to help student outcomes in reading. In today's podcast, some of the things we'll be discussing are the importance of reading out loud to children, methods to teach children how to read, and the positive impact of making f- and the positive impact of making mistakes in front of students. Welcome to this episode of the Teacher Toolkit podcast. Obviously, I'm Libby Isaac, I am your host, and I am joined in this episode with the absolute almighty Ruth Everett. Um, and if you don't know much about Ruth, it's she's a literacy guru, and we're going to be unpicking and talking about reading in the classroom. Um, so without me spending lots and lots of time waffling to do with that, I'm going to introduce Ruth, and she's going to um, talk to us about about that and I can't wait and it's going to be a whole 25-30 minutes of complete free CPD. So Ruth thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Um, Can you just introduce yourself a little bit about your background just so that the people listening know know what you've been doing. Okay so um, very quickly because it's a it's a good old sort of 37 years of teaching. Um, I was trained to be a primary school teacher um, which I thought I would love but I did love it and I loved the students and I taught in year six, then were old juniors. Um, and it was so hard and I found it really, really difficult because I have so much respect for primary colleagues because they have to teach everything. And I was really good at teaching the English and creative stuff, but not so good at the maths. So <laughs> I made a transition to secondary. But I mention that because my primary experience has stayed with me forever because I feel passionately about the whole child and how we don't just teach our subject at secondary. We must understand the importance of reading across the curriculum and and the whole child. Um, I ended up as a deputy head in a couple of schools in um, Essex. And then when my husband became a head teacher and I had three children, I stepped back for a few years, always did supply and part time because I teaching's a drug to me. And then about five years ago, after teaching secondary English for many, many years, um, I stepped out of main class teaching and but I'm in schools all the time supporting senior leaders and colleagues, primary and secondary in helping um, student outcomes through reading. So that passion for reading and the importance of those primary and those early years has never left me even though I ended up as a specialist at key stage four and five absolutely and I think even even more so I know uh uh because I've worked with quite a few primary head teachers recently, L- literacy and reading is so important, especially as we're, we're coming out of that pandemic Absolutely. and how we can help. And, and early years is where the disadvantage gap 
has been most impacted I was reading yeah. today and so absolutely and obviously yeah. I work in secondary education and I know I know that your uh, your your sons do as well or at least one of them does um and you know we we can see the gaps like staring us mm-hmm. in the face so it's it's such an important topic to be talking about uh, in this episode so I'm just going to say the question and we're going to unpick it because it's it's our favorite thing to talk about isn't it <laughs> um so why do you think it's so important for teachers to read out loud to students in the classroom? Okay, so those of you who have young children, this will resonate with you particularly. So for me, my husband and I, you know, we were very busy deputy heads together and then he was ahead and we would fight one another in the evening to be the person, to be mum or dad, who would snuggle up with the boys in bed and read to them and read with them. And I think that that's where a child's love of reading and that interest in words, that triggering word curiosity, if you like, comes from. Um, And children who have that early start with word-rich homes where dialogue and hearing words is so profoundly important, uh, they have a, a... foot in the right direction before they start school. Um, In education circles, it's known as the Matthew effect. So in other words, the rich get richer. So children like my own, three lads, all summer born, so should have been the most disadvantaged, if you like, statistically in the education system, all went to the local secondary school, primary schools, but they're high achievers. And that isn't because they're geniuses. They're really not. (laughs) They're like me, (laughs) work hard. But they also had that early intervention if you like of of talk and listening to reading so that when they started school words were familiar it was it there was a love of language already unfortunately our children I'm sure your children will be the same as mine Libby um, have had that rich early years experience of being read to they ask you, they chortle at the same lovely phrases like I love you to the moon and back. You know, they ask you again and again, um, that imitation, they imitate. Children who haven't had that gift of that kind of early language experience don't have those skills when they start school. So it is even more important that teachers, when they're um teaching anything whether it's a maths question a tricky word question as we call them at GCSE or a history source question we read it to those children who struggle with reading because you're immediately giving them an access in because they've heard the words before they then have to try and read them and if a child is not reading with what we call automaticity or with fluency um, if they're still decoding they are reading three and a half times slower. Mm. So a sentence that an automatic reader like ourselves would read, it would take them three and a half times longer wow. to process that. And that means their working memory is being used up on the reading, so they're not able to process the knowledge that is in the reading. Does that answer your question? I've just gone Absolutely. Off and um, can you just talk to us about that decoding situation? Mm. So obviously when you're at a secondary school, they go from subject, maths, geography, history, PE, drama, and, and I, for, in particular science, and I know you've given examples of science before mm. and how mm. 
unbelievably difficult that is for students. Can you just talk mm. to us about that as well? So, so code switching is what you're referring to there. So what we mean by that is when in a secondary school, if a child's really unlucky, they'll go to a school where they have six periods a day. Many schools are now trying to limit that number of periods because every time a child goes from one academic code to another, in other words, let's say period one is maths and then they go to PE, period two, and then period three is English, then period four is IT, then period five is home ec and period six is French. They've had to access six different academic codes because all of those languages, because they each have their own subject specific language, is different. Now, if a child is still decoding, is what I mentioned before, let's take the word cat. If a child is decoding, they won't read cat. They won't recognise that as a word. They'll still be going ka-a-ta. And hence, that's where you get the slowness and that three and a half times as long. So what reading aloud does is help those children hugely because they're hearing that word. And so they're then able, when they have a go themselves, to read it far more easily. Absolutely. And and one thing you said about obviously reading to your children before bed, like obviously I've got a really young family and obviously I'm doing that at the moment and it's definitely my favourite time of the day. Part of the day. And um, just, just the most obvious example of that and how their, their schema and their schemata is processing, even within their, their such little, little, mm. little bodies. I was walking, um, I live by the sea, so I was walking by the sea um, with one of my children and I was saying, oh, look at the sea, you know, blah, blah. And she said, um, do you know another word for sea is the ocean? And obviously it came from from our book, um, what the uh, ladybird saw and heard at the seaside. And and I just thought, wow, like without reading that story to you, you wouldn't have known the different versions of that. Mm -hmm. And as she's growing and she's going through preschool and she's going to start reception in September, Mm -hmm. her schemata is just absolutely like it blows me away. Some of the Mm -hmm. words that she, Mm -hmm. she can recall, like she was talking about extinct and that's only because we've read a book about animals that are extinct right. because obviously... And, and don't forget the talk and, and the talk that you'll be doing as a mother anyway. You know, you're, you're the kind of mother, I would imagine, that when you're going around the supermarket and you'll be saying, oh, look at that, or can you see that? That's called... Oh, oh stay in the trolley. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, all right. But, you know, it's, it's that children at that age are like little sponges. And yes. so the more words you can you can expose them to... The more you trigger a love of words and that curiosity in words that, that will give them that the massive effect, the rich get richer once they get to school. Yeah. And when you can physically see that as a teacher, it's amazing. And we have so many disadvantaged students um, in the schools I've certainly worked in. (laughs) And, you know, it's so important for them to get to get the same access to education. Um, Mm -hmm. And it it can be really difficult because they don't have what what, you know, what my children have been brought up with and what your children have been brought up with. Um, Mm. Can you talk to me a little bit about science? Because you gave such a great example about how science is is a really incredibly difficult subject. Yeah. So I I think the research is uh, done by Wellington and Osborne and and they say, and and the Science Institute, and they say that learning science for children um, is like learning another language. Now, why is that the case? It's because if you think about it, um, I think it's 90% of maths and scientific terms are of Latin and Greek etymology of, of, that, of origins. So, you know, think of some words, 
rhombus, parallelogram, isosceles in maths, um, you know, photosynthesis, osmosis, alveoli, respiration, the list goes on. Now, they are all um, Latinate or of Greek origin. So that's one hurdle. Think about that if you're a decoder and you're still having to, to, to read by numbers, if you like. Um, and the other problem is that in a non-fiction text, which science and maths is non-fiction, obviously, it's full of nouns. You can't guess nouns. Now, your daughter's example of an ocean and the sea, that was a really lovely example of synonyms. So in English, and even to an extent history, let's think of a history text, you might have majesty, so you could, you could replace that with king or monarch. A science text, you can't replace something like sodium chloride, osmosis. You just have to know the noun. <laughs> and for non-fiction, nouns, non-fiction is full of nouns. Mm. So it's about teachers identifying that non-fiction is a, is a different beast to teach. And you've got to repeat teach that vocabulary, pre-teach it keep reminding children of it um, because without the, that knowledge of those key scientific terms you can't access the the questions absolutely and I suppose what one of the I don't know if it's a mutation to what you're saying but one one I've I've heard this before and that's um, somebody who has or people who have taken on board everything like the research behind it and then they've said oh we don't allow private reading anymore Mm, um, so can mm. you just talk to us a little bit about that? I suppose you're you're probably not saying that. There's there's no, a way that that's obviously incredibly successful still. Can you just, just talk to us about that. So I, I always say to schools that independent, silent, private reading is the optimum way to read. OK, of course it is. You know, when but when a child is an automatic or strategic reader, when they know how to read, when they can decode automatically and they can ask themselves questions and repeat read if they don't understand something, that's the ideal situation. However, in a mixed ability class, the chances of everybody being able to read at what we call their chronological reading age, in other words, the age they are, so if they're 11, reading at the age of an 11 year old, um, that, that's slim in most schools. Mm. Now, if you are reading privately, there is absolutely no way for the teacher to to understand and assess whether the child is understanding what they're reading. So when a child is reading out loud, obviously, um, you, can you, you can know whether they're reading with understanding because you can see if they're self-correcting. You can hear if they're reading with intonation or they're stopping at a full stop or they're recognising a question mark. Um, if a child's completely missed out a line, you know, that's suggesting, that's a strong indicator that they're not understanding. These mm. are all comprehension indicators. Now, if a child's reading silently, you have no way of assessing whether they're doing that, unless you've had reading tests, which we know, you know in your class, that those children are reading at above the age they need to be reading for the text they're reading. So I am not saying that silent reading is, is a no-no. It, is it is, it is what you want children to be able to do. It's, like, it's like the end, the end goal, the isn't end, it? Yeah. And yeah. obviously, when they're in an exam, they're reading independently and silently with no scaffold from you, the teacher. 
So, so that is the op that, well, that's what we're aiming for. Yeah. But if you're decoding or a child is way below their chronological reading age or standardised score, they, you need to scaffold that reading. And the most powerful way to do that is for the teacher to model strategic mm -hmm. reading and then ask the child to reread what they've just read because they'll have heard it and they'll, they'll have seen it as you're reading it and they can then imitate what they've heard and they're, they're going to have some success. So it's a really good way to motivate reluctant readers. Well, that, that was going to be my next question. So if you're sat, at, maybe as a secondary school teacher and, it, and you're thinking, oh, reading, that's English or that's, you know, that's not my mm -hmm. subject, etc. Um, how do you teach them to read? Like if you're, if you're a maths teacher and, you know, it's, not, it's just not the, the first thing that comes to mind, perhaps. Maybe it is now because there's a lot, a lot of work going on in secondary schools. But how do you teach them to read if, you, for example, you're a maths teacher? So your maths teacher, I mean, I've some, seen some brilliant heads of maths, um, you know, encourage their whole department to read aloud the, the from the PowerPoint, from the questions on, on the PowerPoint. When they're reading the exam, they'll ensure that they're reading the question aloud first and then asking the children perhaps to reread it. So they're checking they've understood it. Um, you know, maths teacher, they have those very, very tricky GCSE, particularly the foundation paper, I call them tricky word questions, you know, the problem mm. words. Um, in the 2017, I think it was AQA paper, there was a question in maths on um, children go to the theatre, uh, no, not children, people go to the theatre, some sit in the circle and some sit in the stalls. What is the ratio of people, you know... Now that's well, I'd maths. be lost at the theatre in the stool somewhere because that's how my <laughs> maths think, brain think works. Of, <laughs> the difficulty of, of that as, and, you know, that subordinate clauses and all of that. So a maths teacher can really support their students by reading that question aloud and then showing them the type of syntax that you get in that question, that you'll usually get what's known as a subordinate clause where there's additional information. So children aren't immediately thrown by that language of maths. So just as they would teach algebra and the fact that you always do the bit in brackets in maths first, you teach the language of maths. And what, what are the four, thi the four things that um, you look for with reading? So um, these four kind of strands, I like to call them the fluency <laughs> strands, I, I've taken from Tim Rosinski's fluency rubric, which if you go online and just put in Tim Rosinski fluency rubric or grid, that will come up. So basically what we call a strategic reader, in other words, a reader who is reading for understanding and one that you know is understanding will do four things. They will read to punctuation. So they won't just ignore full stops. You know, they will stop with a comma, they'll pause um, with a semicolon. They'll, they'll understand the purpose of that. Um, they'll read with appropriate pace. Mm -hmm. So perhaps a long sentence, they might speed up, whereas a short sentence, they might be more emphatic. Um, they'll read with expression and intonation. That's a really important part of reading, obviously. And perhaps the biggest giveaway for a child not understanding is if they don't self-correct. So, for example, if you're reading um, the word autonomy and you, you say anatomy and carry on, you haven't understood the difference that, you know, that that's an incorrect word. You've read it, you've decoded it successfully, but you haven't understood its 
actual meaning, the nuances of the differences of those words. Absolutely. So these are, these are the fluency strands, if you like, that almost you could talk fluency is like the bridge between decoding and comprehension. And once you've crossed that bridge and you are able to read with those fluency strands, you're on the way to understanding. And if, if I was a head of department, say if I was a head of department of humanities, I mean, I wonder why I chose that. And, uh, <laughs> and um, um, what, what, what would you advise me um, to get reading into my department time a lot more? What could I do to, to help you know, spread the message, so to speak, to get, to get my team reading, to get students thinking about reading? Like, what could I do mm. during those meetings to help with that? So I think the first very important message I would say here is I know as a secondary school teacher that time is of the essence and you, you, nobody is saying to you, you've got to spend more time reading in your lessons. What you've got to do is the reading that is there, you do in a particular way. And I would suggest you always, if possible, model those fluency strands and then mm -hmm. give children opportunities to reread those um, so that's number one. In terms of department time, um, a really successful um, head of department, head of history that I, I know of, used to give their department um, a primary source and say, right, everybody read this before next department meeting. And then I'm going to model it and we're going to talk about the barriers, you know, that 16th century, um, you know, modern, uh, sorry, traditional language is going to pose to children. What difficulties? What are we going to anticipate? What words would we have to pre-teach? What syntax is difficult? So when you've got something like the aforesaid crime, you know, mm -hmm. that legalese, you know, we mustn't fall into that curse of knowledge. We know what that means. They won't. So it's about giving teachers the opportunity to, to look at those sources in terms of humanities and think and practice themselves reading aloud because many teachers are less confident than others in terms of reading aloud. And I would say, you know, it's so important and so impactful for less able readers to be able to do this that I would suggest you try to script your reading sometimes. Yeah. If there is an important source you're about to read, practice it a few times. If you're an and English I'm, teacher, you know, yeah. practice the extract question for Shakespeare. I'm I'm very aware that that's definitely my weakness in life. Like some some words I just ca I can't pronounce. I cannot read. Oh, it's not my strength. So and especially when I'm teaching history, I might you know we're doing Nazi Germany and you know I actually go into the the language department and say how do I pronounce this correctly because I've been teaching it for <laughs> yeah, years and yeah. I know that I'm not getting it right. And, and write it down. It. It's called text marking, Libby. So if you know you're going to teach something with some tricky words that you might fall over, first of all, make the mistake because there's nothing more powerful for a child to see you self-correct mm -hmm. and that it's absolutely fine to do so. That's really powerful, you know, to make a mistake and say, oh, I don't think I said that right. Let me do that again. Yes, that's better, you know. <laughs> um, so write stag fire, you know, say it wrong yeah. and then say, I'm going to correct myself. It's not that. You know, um, and that's showing children that you're not perfect and that you've got to practice and that reading is part of that. Um, going back to the head of department thing. So maybe if you've modelled the following head of, uh, following department meeting, you might say, right, so and so, could you bring a source along? Make sure we've all had a chance to read it first and then you're going to model it. So it becomes 
part and parcel of the importance of source work in history. Um, uh, you know, maths, you can make the tricky word question. You know, can we just have a go at reading that? How would you read that? How would you break it up? How would you expose children? Would you then give them an opportunity to reread it themselves or text mark? So, yes, yeah. that, that that's what I would do. Because, like you've said before, a lot of the time students don't fail because they can't do the maths, they fail because they can't oh, no. access the question. Absolutely. And I, I could give you a thousand examples of teachers who, you know, after an exam, or their head in their hands will go, they could do the maths, but they gave up because they didn't understand this term or they couldn't read it. And they said, sir, you weren't there, so I couldn't read it. And, and it makes me want to cry and it does make them cry, you know. So this is why we are all teachers of reading. And that doesn't mean that if you're a science teacher, 80% of your lesson is reading. What it means is you take opportunities when they arise to read aloud and give children opportunities to then reread what you've read aloud. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I'm just going to do a tiny little quiz just so we, we get to know you a little bit and uh, and you'll help me with my next uh, my next podcast. So I'm going to ask you some questions and you just have to answer them as quickly as you can. Um, oh, and obviously some will take a little bit longer than others. So my first question to you is what's one piece of educational research or an educational book that you think stands the test of time? That's your favourite piece of research. I'm going to have to say that it's E.D. Hirsch and the knowledge-based um, curriculum and and, uh, and and all the work um, around knowledge versus skills, which is such a misnomer in the first place because, of course, both are equally important. But I think that really was a light bulb moment for me, understanding that if you say to children, go and find out about that or talk about that, you get these empty conversations what you set them up with the knowledge, instruct mm -hmm. them with what they need to know and then give them the opportunities to learn more and enjoy the learning. So I think I think the whole cultural literacy and, and that for me was a major um, Brilliant. Um, what's your biggest achievement so far? Gosh. I think my biggest achievement was loving English in the classroom. I, I, no, yeah. You know, and going and, and watch, I mean, I don't want to name names, but students who come back when I was teaching and say, Miss, I'm now an English teacher because I, I love that. That must lessons. feel really good. Yeah. Yeah. And students who said that they wouldn't get to university or weren't thinking of university, or I'm not saying that university is the end goal, I'm not sure it is, but basically, students who have said, I can't do this, and then proving to them, yes, you can. Sounded like a bomb there. Because why we want you to be our teacher, Ruth. Um, oh, well. So, I miss it, <laughs> if um, if you weren't a teacher, what would be your dream job? Secretary of State for Education. Oh, there we go. We started off with that one, didn't we? <laughs> I, I I just think that's such an important, in, impactful job, and and something where. Um, yeah, I'm afraid I'm addicted to education. I always have been. I, I can't. I don't honestly think I could live without it. It's, I, I just think that what, what I get from young people, even though I teach less, I do still teach when I go into schools and model teaching, they just are, they give you so much back and, and I think it keeps you young and yeah. humble. Every day is a new day. Children yeah. know so much more than we ever give them credit to know. Um, who should I interview next of the podcast and why? Well, anyone in the world. Anybody in the world. 
Oh, it would have to be um, Barack Obama because I could listen to him. I'll see if I can get him on. <laughs> all night long. Um, anybody for me that that brings words to life, actually. And um, I often, with my training, but very much as an English teacher in the classroom, often use speeches because I think a great speaker brings words to life. And I think it's a huge gift. Um, mm. So I... Yeah, I mean, there's other people who are maybe less famous who I, I think you should bring on. Um, who who do you think educational wise? Okay, I can I name drop somebody who I work quite closely yeah, with in school. Yeah, Karen Baldwin. Mm -hmm. She's vice principal at Stoke Academy, Ormiston in Ipswich. Mm -hmm. um, she is the most tenacious, gritty lady. I compare her to a terrier because she doesn't give up on anything. Um, and she has that vision where she won't try and do everything at once. Mm -hmm. So she'll identify what she wants to improve and she'll sweat until it's happening. And then rather than just leave it and go on to the next thing, she'll check that it's being monitored and that that skill In or whatever it is, right is implemented, yeah. embedded, and her staff know that, that she will not stop <laughs> until it's right. So, um, and they've just managed to get from RI to good. And it's a, it's got some challenges. Stoke High and I'm, yeah. I think she and the head there, Andrew, and, but her team are, are inspirational. So, yeah. Brilliant. I have to go and visit. Um, yes, definitely do. <laughs> and uh, my, last, my last question is, what, what was your favourite memory from when you were at school or your favourite teacher? My favourite teacher, there you go, it's not a surprise, was my A-level English teacher who loved words and loved literature um, and gave us as a class opportunities to really stretch ourselves. Nothing was ever good enough. She was a little bit like Alex Ferguson, you know, <laughs> who used to sort of give the hairdryer treatment at half time to Beckham and Giggs. Our, my A-level English teacher, Mrs Brown, her name was, used to do the same. Nothing was... You know, don't settle for that. You can do better than that. Um, and at the time, I, I can remember hating her at times. Mm. <laughs> but looking back on it, my goodness me, what a, what a wonderful woman she was. Yeah, and, uh, we, we had an English teacher when I was at secondary school. And we, we used to sort of gather before her lessons and just groan, not because we hated it, but because we knew our brains would ache. Would hurt. Yeah. And we knew that we'd come away feeling really good, but we'd... You know, we were completely vulnerable and exposed. You can mm. hide, you can mess around, you can, <laughs> can do any but of the But you also that you have that safe space to make mistakes. But, but mm. if you're trying your hardest, that's all that you expect. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And I remember yeah. what one time she, I don't know, I don't know what came over her, but she allowed us to make like this massive tower of books or something. And it was like most fun we've ever had because she <laughs> allowed it. She was doing it with us. It was all, it was all a bit strange because usually we we read aloud and she reads mm, and you know mm, we did our mm. practice questions and it was just our brains hurt but yeah yes no, well that's what you that want well. children should be working harder than you do in the classroom absolutely absolutely well easy, thank you so probably. much for coming on uh, <laughs> the teacher cool. toolkit podcast ruth my pleasure really enjoyed talking to you libby as always thanks Thank you for listening to this podcast. To continue the conversation, head over to www.teachertoolkit.co.uk 
and our social media channels to access all the links and resources mentioned on today's show. Why not share this with your colleagues and give them the gift of time, reduced workload and increased impact? Until the next time, before you look after your students, look after yourself.